You're listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast in association with the National Trust for Scotland. Series 2, Episode 2, Smells. Hello and welcome to the Gladstone's Land podcast. We're back for our second episode. Today we are going to be talking about a project that's been running across the National Trust for Scotland in a number of properties called Experiencing Collections. We're particularly lucky at Gladstone's Land because we've been a part of this and we've been looking at smells and we're going to talk a lot more about this later in the episode. But around the table with me I have a number of people that have been involved in this project. So we have Sarah Longfield, who is the creative producer across the whole project. We have Clara Wheel, uh, who's our smells expert. We have Josh Armstrong, who is an interdisciplinary artist, but in this case is talking to us and doing some work with taste and food. And finally, Anna Breton, the Gladstone's Land Visitor Services Manager, who you may remember from previous episodes. Now, they're all gathered in one place tonight because it is the official opening of our smell intervention at the property. And we have been promised period appropriate smells. We've been promised historic recipes. And that's where Josh comes in. And I have also been promised at least one glass of carver. So that is something for us all to be looking forward to. So passing over to Sarah, could you just tell us a little bit about this project and what's been going on? Hello, yes, well, (laughs) we are working across six different properties across the whole of the Trust. There's all different themes, four of them are sensory themes, so there's there's sound and music, there's smell, there's materials and making, which is all about touch, there is light and dark, heat and cold up at Haddo House, but we're also reinventing the guided tour at Brodie, and we are looking at time at Pollock House. Sounds very exciting. And is this just experimentation or is there an end game? Yeah, so the the idea of the project is to enhance the visitor experience and find different ways of increasing repeat visitation and increasing the demographic of visitors who come to the National Trust for Scotland properties. We're really lucky here. So we're concentrating on smells in Gladstone's Land. Was the property specifically picked for that? Did you just pick the names out of the hat? (laughs) I wasn't around when that (laughs) happened, however, I think Anna would know. So it was part of the project, the properties were handpicked beforehand, perhaps they had potential to incorporate more things into their visitor experience Mm -hmm. and then they did several months worth of visitor surveys, asked loads and loads of questions and it was a lot of market research that went into choosing the different things for each property and they looked at what we could improve in certain areas and so all of that research went into sort of identifying the different topics for each for each mm-hmm. property. Should we talk a little bit about the Gladstone's Land project? Yes. Uh, so <laughs> Clara, how did you first get into smell? Oh my gosh. Well, you've got a Yeah. I guess around 10, around 10 years ago, I encountered a perfume in a very fancy bookshop in London and this perfume was called Black March and it smelt of soil and it smelt like nothing I'd ever smelt before and basically my brain just exploded with all these questions like what is in this perfume? How can it smell like soil? Wait, who gets to make perfume? Why Why do people not know about this? So I sort of started off from this real point of curiosity that led me down this rabbit hole of research and uh, I guess it's just like a hobby that's got out of control at this point. 
That's how all the good things start, though, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> There's no point in doing it if you're not interested in it. I am very passionate about smell, and I get very excited communicating that to other people and getting them involved in it too. So it's been really great to get to work at Gladstone's Land to get sent into the building. What have the two of you been doing here? I know, Clara, you've been wafting around with all sorts of exciting smells. <laughs> I don't really waft, yes. <laughs> that's, my, that's my vibe. So I've got Josh here with me to explore moving some of the kind of perfumery and scent materials that are now installed in the building into a more taste direction. So we're using some of the actual same ingredients downstairs as we're using for this event tonight where we're going to try these fruits. And Josh has also been kind of interpreting the histories within Gladstone's Land and drawing upon trade links with the Dutch and things like that to, to come up with recipes. Maybe we should inquire directly uh, to Josh. What, what are we going uh, to yeah, be eating? Yeah. Alright, well I, I think in terms of how, how we approached this when Clara asked me to make some things for this evening was two different veins. There's one kind of vein when, when looking at uh, food and taste more broadly, which is to bring stories to life. So kind of reimagining a narrative, I guess, through through food. So we have something that I call the rotten pineapple pot de fruit, which is, is kind of taking itself from the history and the stories around pineapples being luxurious in the you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century, but also them being extremely expensive. And so when people did have them in the United Kingdom, not many people actually tasted them because they were so expensive, nearly 5,000 pounds per pineapple, that they would be centerpieces. <laughs> so we'd have kind of centerpieces of pineapples that would really exist until they began to rot. I'll and be so, honest, I normally keep my pineapple till it rots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I eat it far too quickly. Yeah. I, I like that you said that like you're regularly buying <laughs> Letting them rot. <laughs> I really like pineapples. I love it so much that I don't want it to leave. I don't want to finish it because I like mm -hmm. it. It's, it's my favourite, so it just ends up sitting there. For yeah, it's yeah. rotting. Yeah. Yeah. So we've, we've made a kind of a pat of fruit, so like a, a fruit paste out of this pineapple that's been fermented. So actually, I'm interested in historic recipes as well. So fermented pineapple is quite a popular drink from Mexico. Where they ferment the pineapple rinds that have some natural bacteria in them to create a nice kind of earthy flavor as well. So we have that. We're also looking at nutmeg. We did some research into, into nutmeg and some historic recipes. So we have one for a codling tart. So essentially this recipe comes from a cookbook. It's called The Experienced English Housekeeper in the 18th century. A very practical book made by a housekeeper. Taking the original recipe and tried out some different versions of it. As, as you know, kind of historic recipes don't tell us much information that we'd be used to these <laughs> so days. You have to interpret things like a bushel of this and a, you know, like kind of, that was yeah. just a really strange example. But well, it's, it's interesting because there are some random measurements, especially in, the, in one of the Dutch recipes I was looking at, but also they just kind of say add sugar to taste. It's like a technical yeah. challenge on the Great British. It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I always get thrown by like a teacup full, a breakfast cup full. Like how are those two things different? Mm. A breakfast cup must be bigger. I would assume mm. so, yeah. But essentially because actually they were talking the person who was translating another 18th century Dutch recipe was that actually she realised that not only are the measurements different in the 18th century in, in the Netherlands, but actually it varied between cities. So actually sometimes they'd say like an Amsterdam cup. So actually when you look at recipes, 
I potentially don't really know what people were talking about. So like it's kind the of Scottish mile to an English mile. <laughs> it, it came from Haddo House. It was from the house to to an obelisk at the end of the walk, and that was the Scottish mile. It's, it's longer than an longer English than mile, and then a country mile is longer than that. Yeah, so that's yeah. why the rule mile is longer than a mile because it's not an actual mile. It's a Scottish, Scottish mile. mile. I suppose it is a, an actual Scottish mile. And in Glasgow, I feel like the style mile isn't a mile, but I've never checked. Does no, I think it just rhymes with. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes, and so the last thing we're having tonight is, again, using things from downstairs. Yeah. So this is a recipe, it's, it's the Dutch one I was talking about, called a fine kaks, which are basically kind of small cakes. They're with rose water and mm -hmm. um, labdanum. So we have some labdanum resin that's been kind of di dissolved into the cookies. What is well. labdanum? So labdanum. I'm so glad we'll, you we'll, are. I think we'll pass over to Clara for, for some sure, perfumery. Yeah, I can... <laughs> The, the tea on labdanum. So labdanum is an amazing resin that grows on these little bushes that are in the Mediterranean. So in terms of perfumery history, they grew extensively on Cyprus and there is a sort of a genre or family of perfume called a chypre, the French word for Cyprus, that features labdanum extensively. Um, so that's how sort of synonymous with the island it is. It is a really warm, sticky, ambery, lovely smell. And also, interestingly, the way that they used to harvest it was by sending goats through the bushes <laughs> and then combing the labdanum out from their little goat beards. Um, <laughs> I don't know who figured this out, who was like, what's that on that goat? Like, oh, it smells kind of good. Or they were just lazy, not sure. <laughs> and then, Josh, you were saying that there's a, another beard connection. Yeah, so in the Babylonian times, people would use labdanum for their beards, to, oh. they, to basically groom their beards. So there's kind of a, a funny little connection of perhaps, perhaps they were getting that from the goats <laughs> with, with yeah. their waxed beards. So yeah, labdanum is one of my favourite perfumery ingredients. I love it. And actually in the perfume that has been created for downstairs, for the Georgian room, featuring labdanum, we're also featuring rose, which is where that sort of combination then fits into these edibles that have been... I keep calling them edibles. What do you remember to them? Goodies? I guess you could call them tastings, tastings. or something, mm, maybe, maybe, in this kind of setting. Great. So yeah, that's where the, the crossover is with the rose and the latinum together. Yeah. yeah. And you were talking about some of the things that we've got going on downstairs. Mm. How, how did you come up with those smells? What oh inspired? Gosh. So you, you've added a number of smells into different places. Uh -huh, I have. So my approach really has been about just integrating scent at different levels, pretty subtle scents. Because I've never wanted the scent to be something that's kind of shouting louder than the stories being told by the guides or by the beautiful actual visual experience that you get from being in Gladstone's land. I always wanted the scent to be something that integrates with that, that complements that. And the best way to approach that is to put things in at low levels and build this sort of like tapestry of scent. And then you can push it up to quite a high level, figure out where it's best sitting at with feedback from the visitors and from yourselves. So we have a number of things going on. So as you enter the painted chamber, you should notice a sort of a gentle background level, a bit of smoke going on, but also a kind of herbal edge. And that comes from a tincture that was made in collaboration with the team at Gladstone's Land. So we did a workshop where I introduced various herbs that would have been used domestically in the 17th century 
things like well, classics kind of like lavender, thyme and rosemary, but also materials like ladies bed straw, which was used to stuff mattresses, has a really nice sort of tonka bean kumaric edge to it. So kumaric is a, a perfumery term to refer to something that's high in coumarin. Tonka beans are very high in coumarin, so that's the reference that most people will know. So there's that in there, and there's also something called southern wood, which in French is known as garde-robe. And that lets you know that it actually is a good insect repellent and a bug repellent to keep your wardrobe safe. But the visitor services team and the volunteers combined herbs to their own recipe. I then put that into alcohol for a month and the alcohol drew the scent out of the herbs. So that has now gone into this mixture that's being diffused into the painted chamber. So we're smelling kind of a, a combination of smoke, lived-in smell and a little bit of sort of herbal freshness. We then, as you sort of approach the bed, you might be picking up a little bit of a, a musty odour. Um, I made a scent that designed to reflect the idea of this bed being slept in by um, people who were wearing quite sort of heavy perfumes, because we can think that they might be quite rich people living at Gladstone's Land. Certainly levels of kind of bodily smell would have been different in the past. So it's got a kind of a bit of a bodily undertone to it, as well as having a pleasant edge. So you can smell that on the curtains. Really interesting <laughs> the way that different staff at Gladstone's Land have reacted oh, to this like really? musky smell. So <laughs> I can really more. Yeah. I can really smell the body musk in there. Whereas yeah. I think you were saying that you actually yeah, really like it. Like, this smells amazing. <laughs> Did we say earlier we said that it smelled it like, like a, ri- a rich man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Historical man. <laughs> a really sexy ghost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, there's a lot of ways to interpret it. I did ask if there were any ghosts here, and I don't think there are, are there? So Not as far as we're aware. We have to invent our own through the use of smell. <laughs> then, I guess moving on from that, as you walk towards the kitchen, you will be picking up a stronger smoke scent, and also kind of spicy thing going on. In the table in the kitchen, we've got various spices on display. Um, spice was very important historically and so I really wanted that to be like a focal point where you really can smell spice and you really can smell smoke and it sort of brings the place to life a little bit. Moving on from that, in the Georgian room there's a bit of a more interactive scent situation happening. There is <laughs> yeah. great description. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a thing like that. So everything else has been quite environmental at that point mm-hmm. and quite sort of subtle. But within the Georgian room, you'll be able to smell a little perfume that I've formulated in response to one of the lovely paintings that's on the wall. And I never remember all the details about the painting, so maybe you would like to talk about this painting a bit? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's revenge, isn't it, for being put on the spot with the podcast. So the portrait is Elizabeth McDowell. She, for anyone that's visited, she's the one on the far wall holding a big basket of fruit. So she's probably mm-hmm. one of our more famous portraits. You might be more familiar with her art. She also painted a very famous portrait of Bonnie Prince Charlie. Mm-hmm. And it dates from about 1737, and she's related to a lot of the other portraits on her wall. She's the daughter of Judge Graham and Lady Mary. You can also visit at the Georgian House. Yeah, you can, <laughs> they're part of the shared collections between the, the two properties. And she went on, we seem to think to have ten children, <laughs> which seems unbelievably excessive. Five daughters and five sons, but we don't have a huge amount of information about many of those. She's, she's Graham originally, she marries into the McDowell family, who have made all of their money in 
wine, rum and sugar and slaves. So she's a very well-to-do woman from the early 18th century. But she does have some really cool, she grows exotic fruits in her hot houses on her estate. So she's sort of one of the early producers of that. I mean, not her personally, I imagine, but... Um, <laughs> the estate. <laughs> but I did estate, not yeah, know that. That's good of peaches. She's proud of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I found the portrait quite enigmatic and I was inspired to create a perfume that's drawing on the tastes in perfumery at the time, some of the ingredients, so things like labdanum and rose, as well as something called civet. And then it also has a kind of a, a peachy thing going on, like a fresh green peach skin smell. <laughs> so people can come and consider the portrait whilst enjoying that perfume. And you mentioned civet there. Yeah. Which, <laughs> sorry. No, but another very interesting perfumery ingredient. Oh, I know you've absolutely. told me a little bit about this in the past. Yeah, and um, civet is kind of horrific. If you consider in terms of uh, history of perfumery ingredients, originally we have things that are just derived from plants and um, things that have been distilled and things like that. But we went through this developmental phase where animal-based perfumes were really the thing and they're really synonymous with wealth. So you have musk from a musk deer, you also have some coccostorum, which is from beavers glands. Um, <laughs> don't be too specific. So use your imagination. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And then civet. So civet, confusingly, then the material civet is from the civet cat, um, which is a sort of carnivorous wee beastie that dwells uh, in, in sort of Indonesia, thereabouts, I think. They are sort of a bit like a cross between a cat and a mongoose, pretty vicious. You might also be familiar with civet coffee. That's a maybe more recent development, this idea of feeding the civet cats coffee and then they poop it out and it's more valuable. Yeah, yeah. so the civets have had a bad run in terms of people doing strange things to them. The civet that is produced by the civet cat is in, again, glands. The perineal glands? Perineal glands? I'm not sure how to say that. But it's a sort of a, a thick buttery type substance that smells abhorrent, like really, really bad. And the only way I can describe it is it's intensely fecal. You might be wondering, like, why would that be good for perfume? <laughs> I'm asking, how do people figure this out? But it acts as a fixative. So in perfumery terminology, a fixative will make the fragrance last a lot longer than it would otherwise. So if you want something that's going to last for hours rather than minutes, you need to have a fixative in there. It also, in a, in a very small dilution, so not in concentration in which it smells fecal, but in a small amount of it, um, in a wider composition, it adds a kind of a depth and a warmth and a richness that nothing else does. It's been incredibly popular throughout the last, I don't know, however many hundred years in perfumery, and even today there are so many perfumes that are based on the kind of this, the civet style, the classic French perfumery style. We just have moved on, thankfully, to using a synthetic version. And I say thankfully because the way that you extract the civet from the civet cat is, is not pleasant. Poor civet cats are civeted, to use the term, just to make it even more confusing. They are essentially, they have their glands scraped and there was a belief that they made a superior product if you provoked them first. So that would involve kind of prodding them and uh, they called it teasing the civets, but it's not, they're not calling them names. They're, um, <laughs> they're, they're physically making them quite riled up. They also fed them 
these are the ones in captivity who've been brought over. They fed them a diet that mainly consisted of foods that were pale or white, like flour and milk, because it was believed that a paler product was more sort of worth high value. So people will be trying to make their civets have a pale civet. So yeah, it's pretty nasty. They'd, they'd also have to really like keep the fires burning too, so that the civets wouldn't die. They were used to a warmer environment, and so you'd have a civet farm that just had like fires roaring. It's really nasty, sorry, it's a real downer. <laughs> a fascinating part of the story. I suppose this question I'm throwing open to everyone. Interventions like this are really interesting, and they're obviously really interesting for us as staff, but what can they, they add to the experience? <laughs> oh my god, everyone obviously wants to answer this question. This is super exciting. Well, on a kind of accessibility equalizer level, just by prioritizing, you know, visual and auditory sense, we are neglecting the other senses which could be offering information and experiences to people who have impairments. That's a really basic one. We need to be exploring that to make everything more accessible to everybody. And then I just, personally, I think that scent really connects with memory and emotion and can lead to people having a more rich experience of a property or a story. Certainly, Physically, we experience scent within our limbic system, the part of the brain that's connected to memory and emotion and real like visceral reactions. So it's a really powerful thing to tap into. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> I think overall, with, with, with all the different interventions that have worked in really dramatically different ways, it's about creating a resonance with a property and you do that through storytelling and through emotional connection so yes if you're you're there and you smell something that reminds you of something else and whether that's a pleasant connection or, or an unpleasant one you're still making that connection and you're, you're remembering that, that visit and it's not just about putting something on for the kids to do whilst the adults read the room cards because I personally I'm 41 I nearly said 42 no, <laughs> adding a year on I'm 41 I don't like reading room cards I find that really hard thing to do I want to experience mm. the property emotionally and through all my senses I want I want to be told stories in different ways not in a, in a lecture based format I want mm. to be told them in ways that make my heart sing and mm. so experiencing collections is about finding simple cost-effective ways of doing that so that you don't have to then bring in a hugely expensive consultant although we'd all like to charge a fortune and do this but no it's about how you can do it on a budget how properties can do it themselves how they can how we can empower properties so we're creating a recipe book mm -hmm. at the end of this project of ideas and inspiration for all the different themes of like this is how you do it this is what you need and obviously there's a bit of inspiration involved, but so there's ways, there's sort of light bites for, you know, just getting started. And then there's a kind of main meal if you really want to go for it. And then perhaps something a bit random, like we're exploring scratch and sniff and how to create that mm. at home or in the property. Mm. So as I understand, this is a project moving forward, but we haven't got too far with this yet. But this may also link into Gladstone's land. Is that correct? Yes, it's totally a Gladstone's land scratch and sniff experience. We just don't know what it is yet. <laughs> yes, this is now our thing. Yeah, kind of, yes, you come yeah. here, you enjoy well, the smell, the, the sexy smell. ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely going to be exactly. <laughs> don't really know where to go with this. <laughs> Got derailed by like such an immersive experience. <laughs> sexy ghosts. I think you should ask Anna, as you know, her manager of the property, what this is doing for Gladstone's land. I think it's been really interesting 
watching how each different thing has gone in as well because you've so Clara's put things in on week by week basis so, so some things went in earlier and it's so interesting to see how different people react as every single person reacts differently to it and um, it does I, I mean going back to what Clara and what Sarah was saying it makes it a much more immersive experience so you're not just learning about history but you're experiencing history as well and yes it is our interpretation of history but it's using historical things and I think smell in particular and taste and they're such you get such visceral reactions with them and Clara was saying that it relates to your memory and it does you kind of walk into a room and I think I said oh it smells like it smells like my grandma <laughs> because yeah. they do remind you of certain things but you get that from every visitor who comes in wow. and they sort of sniff the air and they sort of say oh this this reminds me of such and such mm. and and having that connection with the building yes it makes it more memorable but it also makes you experiencing that on a much deeper level as well mm-hmm. it's a really really exciting project are you collecting those memories you should collect them in a book somewhere we should i should have a little visitor book and sort of say this well, reminds me of yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really nice. really nice. yeah. we will definitely look at that thanks so this project will be in place over the next few months if you want to come along to Gladstone's Land, there will be plenty of opportunities to have a sniff of all of these things <laughs> we've been talking about. We obviously realise that the medium of podcast perhaps isn't the best co- to convey smells. Mm. So do come along and have a smell for yourself. And carrying on the food theme, we'll also be doing some food tasting heading into December as well. We'll be making mm. some historic ice cream recipes Very up in the house. Yeah, <laughs> me too. After I inflicted Parmesan ice cream oh on a number of the people <laughs> sat around this table. I think there's still some left. There's some in the freezer yeah. downstairs if oh, you were really? want to try it. She, she didn't tell me what it was, but she made me try it. <laughs> Very oh, trusting relationship. <laughs> and I feel bad for making people smell like unpleasant odors. Bring you up some Parmesan ice cream. Isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> right. Well, I think we'll probably wrap up there. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for talking to us today. Do pop along to Gladstone's Land if you want to experience this yourself. So that was a really interesting roundup of some of the things that are going on with the Experiencing Collections projects and some of the things that are going on in Gladstone's land. And it's actually been really fun for us smelling all of these yeah. things. I spent a lot of time weirdly smelling bed curtains. I, w- st- I kept going up, just sticking my face into the curtain. Like, <laughs> into the laundry basket. Is this weird? Yes, it is. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> going around I know how horrible some of the smells in jars smell but I keep smelling them anyway yep. <laughs> don't really know why so those smells that we've got in place there's a, a lot that you can come and experience already and there are going to be more going into place over the next couple of weeks so it's going to continue to develop so do pop down and put your nose to the test <laughs> and the smells will also continue to develop absolutely and the, I, I will say that the bad ones are all contained clearly labeled mm-hmm. so you're not going to smell anything horrible by accident unless you 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 want you want that experience <laughs> and i would recommend it because it is very interesting Unfortunately, there were just too many people around the table to have everybody's favourite fact today. We are going to finish up with one of Holly's facts. A fact from me. So, so my, my fact 
You may be familiar with the name Tussaud, if you've ever been to Madame Tussaud. But Madame Tussaud was a woman called Marie Tussaud, who was working during the French Revolution. It became very fashionable to have death masks. So what she would do is she would acquire decapitated heads of French nobles. Of course she would. Of course she would. She <laughs> would cover them in plaster of Paris. She would give them false teeth, she would give them wigs, and she would put them on display. Thus was born Madame Tussauds. I, I, I'm, <laughs> for, for the record, I'm just opening and closing my mouth right now. That is a cracking yet strangely grisly fact. It is. And I would have expected nothing less. Of course not. <laughs> and, some of the, and the teeth didn't even belong to the people, they just got random teeth. The teeth that actually belonged to the nobles were used to make dentures and then were given to other, other people who needed teeth more than a decapitated head. Right. That's of the day. That's over and out for Holly and I now, I think, leaving you with that lovely image. glorious thought. Uh, thank you so much for listening and do spread the word if you've enjoyed it let people know or pass the pod should we say mm-hmm. and we will see you again in a fortnight or rather you'll hear from us again in a fortnight it's bye from me holly and it's bye from me kate bye